Broadcasting from the third coast and recorded live at Tripod South Studios, this is The Hango Show. I need to get inside your head. I got to know if you insane. What's up, man? It's just another night. How about you? It's been a little bit crazy, man. It's been a crazy, crazy couple days back to work. Tell you that. Anything in particular, or you, or is just um, is it just the uh, the comeback from the New Year's? Man, I hate going. I love vacation, but I hate it. The, I'll tell you a couple oh. things about vacation. About vacation, man, is that it takes me it takes me about three days minimum to get into vacation mode, and uh, just because I'm trying to decompress all of the the stuff going on and uh, then it takes me about uh, two weeks to get back from vacation uh, just because of everything that I missed as a, as a manager and leader and things like that. And I find myself trying to stay abreast of everything that's happening. So I don't come in blind, but you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, busy and the holidays, things are going crazy that and the end of the year, people are wrapping stuff up. So it just comes to a, to a head. And I'm also part of just a bunch of different um, project groups within the, within the bank. And those things take up a lot of time and it's it's just, you go from, you don't get to ease back into it. You know what I mean? It's it's just, uh, so I'm trying to like today, I uh, was scrambling. I told Emily, I said, can you order some food? I haven't eaten today, and, you know, I'm doing a couple things tonight. I got to work after after we're done here, and and, um, and uh, so she said, do I order, like, dinner or groceries? Because we haven't been grocery shopping. They both, Lily and Emily, have been sick. So um, I said, both. I can't. We can't go any longer without any food. <laughs> <laughs> Something's got to give. <laughs> Something's got to give. So did a huge Walmart order, which – you know, I'm not a big fan of Walmart because I never have anything that I order, but I just try to go all in and get what I think I'm going to be able to get at my doorstep and then go from there. So, but uh, got the Chinese food, man. You got to give it to the to the Chinese. They did me right tonight. They always do, don't they? I'm telling you what. I'm, it, it, I couldn't think of anything. I, I didn't want pizza. I mean, that's kind of an ordering thing. I didn't want to DoorDash anything like a from another restaurant. So I said, just give me the classic Chinese and I'll be all right. Yeah. I mean, you can, people can talk all kinds of crap about, you know, because Chinese food is probably the most polarizing food that you can get. People either love it or they, they hate it. One of the two. Um, but I've never been shortchanged at a, at a Chinese restaurant. When you order Chinese Same. food, they give you a ton of food. Well, I told Emily, I said, hey, did somebody order? Because we get in a pattern of what we, when we order Chinese food, it's pretty much usually the same types of food. You know what I mean? Right. I said, hey, did somebody order some dumplings? She's like, yeah, I had to get us across the across the ordering threshold. Oh, threshold. So, yeah. Hey, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I've just, you know, I've been doing a lot of soul searching and thinking about everything that's going on in the world and, and uh, trying to figure out just a bunch of stuff. I had a really good conversation with my mom last night and uh, just thinking about life in general and you know, what, how, how you become the, the man that you are, the person that you are, if you're not a man, if, you know, man, woman, child, whatever, the person that you are growing up years and how that kind of impacts, you know, everything that you uh, become and how you interact with people, what's your, temperament is and what your triggers are, all those kind of things. And it's just, you know, it's a good time to do some self-reflection at this time of year and, and see what patterns are uh, patterns that you've allowed and, and then what patterns are you going to try to uh, enhance things that are good. And then also things that um, you may need to let go of, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I know what uh, you mean, dude. It's um, that's something that you, I mean, we, we always do it at the beginning of the year, right? I mean, that's something that everybody does. New Year resolutions, New Year's whatever. Um, 
But it's something you should be doing kind of on a day-to-day basis. When you fight, when you see something or when you notice something in your life that's either, I don't know, causing you to miss a business opportunity, miss a life opportunity, miss anything that's important to you, you should do something to correct that. Absolutely. You know, the, the trail that I was going down last night is a, is a difficult trail. And I know you have to, you've talked and mentioned a little bit on the show in the, in the past about men, men's mental health being something that's overlooked quite a bit and, and things that uh, aren't really uh, at the forefront of our culture and society today, as far as uh, being able to work through those things and uh, be able to identify and, and things of that nature. And, so I was just was just kind of thinking about you know January is a tough month month for me in general you know like we've talked about in the past it's it's the month uh, uh, that uh, no it's the last month that I saw my dad thirty uh, mm-hmm. one years ago so yeah. um, and uh, I've, I've been you know I've had a stepdad uh, for uh, twenty seven of those years and and. Um, just the types of interactions that you have with your with your biological father, with your adopted father or your stepfather, how those interactions impact you uh, on a macro level and a micro level, and how you end up treating other people within your circle, whether it be a child or, or the other parent or a sibling or uh, anybody else in society like an employee or a customer. Uh, what kind of lens are you looking at things through based on how you, uh, A, were raised, and raised can mean so many things, uh, you know, were you treated the right way? Do you have any type of uh, baggage that you're holding on to? And, of course, uh, I do. I have baggage, you know, and, um, <clears throat> you know, there's there's so many things I could go into as far as, you know, what my triggers are and, and how I react and, and interact and things of that uh, like that and and some and some regrets that I've got with the way that um, I've interacted with my on my own kids. You know, I have two girls that are uh, one's fifteen and one's ten, and and just reflecting on how soon um, they won't be under my roof anymore. You know, and yeah. what have I done? At, what did I do as a young parent that you know that maybe I would have done differently, or how did I handle things that weren't um, weren't handled the way I might handle them today when I started doing it 15 years ago with my first kid, you know? So I know I'm talking a lot here. But. No, dude, I want you to, this, this is what it's all about. <laughs> um, you know, that's something I can't, you know, not, not being a father. That's something that I can't relate to. Um, I see it from a child's perspective, you know, and I, I like to think, you know, I'm, I'm sure my mom did the best she could with what she had. Um, always had clothes on my back. Always had food in my belly. You know, I, I never, I never wanted for anything. I mean, we weren't loaded growing up. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, I mean, I, I was always clothed. I always had food. I always had a roof over my head. Um, and I. I'm sure your girls will realize that too once they get older. Yeah, they might not have got the bejeweled iPhone or or whatever the hot thing is. But when they get older, they look but they look at what's what's around them, or when they meet kids at college or meet kids in the, or meet you know coworkers when they get older, and they hear what they came up from. I think it'll give them a new perspective. Uh, they may be angsty or whatever now, like most kids are. Or, you know, your kids always seem pretty laid back. I mean, your oldest, I, I razz her all the time, and she just rolls her eyes at me. Uh, but I I think we <laughs> our, our views of our parents change as we grow, grow older. Um, whether we start going through things they went through it, at the age we're at now, or that we see them, you know, as, in a different way as we get older. Or yeah. are things come out that we didn't know about when we were younger, you're like, Oh, that's why this, this, and this happened. Or that's why they took that approach to this, this, and this, it makes sense. Now, um, you can't beat yourself up, up over choices you've made in the past. Uh, 
Yeah, I want to, you know, just just trying to, I can only go from where I'm at now and move forward and try to be um, right. a little, you know, different than in my, from, from the things that I know that need to change. And, you know, as a, you know, it doesn't seem like so young, but as a uh, 26-year-old man having a, a uh, their first kid, man, at 26, I was still selfish, man. I was... <laughs> I was selfish with my time. I was selfish with my resources. And I was married, but I mean, I was selfish. You know, I look back at that man, and and um, and I'm and I'm not ashamed, but I'm. I wish I could have. I wish I would have had the experience. I know everyone probably say that, but I wish I would have had the experience and the um, and the know how to make better choices because those things really did impact my my kids. I mean. Um, you know, and, and dealing with them harshly over things that didn't need to have a harsh dealing, um, you know, and um, and I always promised myself I wouldn't be like that because that's how my dad was with me, you know, pretty harsh and demanding. And, and um, uh, very uh, strict isn't the word I'm looking for, but very demanding. I would say I grew up with a, with a special operator as a father and right. everything was, was black and white. I mean, everything was toe the line and, and that's, you know, the excuse I could use is that's how I was raised, you know, but you know, I've got two girls that are counting on me to show them what it's like to have a man treat them right. You know right. what I mean? And in some of those times, you know, if I'm, if I'm transparent, I failed at that. You know what I mean? And um, I, I love my kids so much, man. I know that, there's other listeners out there that have kids. They love their kids, but man, I, I really, I really want to make sure that my kids know that I love them and they, they feel that I love them, not just to know it. You know what I mean? Well, dude, I'm, I mean, I know what you mean, but I'm, I guarantee you if we ask, you know, your 15 and 10 year old now, you know, does Jake, does your dad love you? Well, of course he does. You know, <laughs> they're not, I, you, you've, you do so much for those girls. Um, I mean, y'all just, just got back from vacation. You know, shoot, man, a lot of kids don't don't get to go on vacation. You know, they don't have a, a pop to take them out to the the goat farm and whatnot. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you gotta. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know every parent wishes they could give their their kid everything they desire, uh, but you can't be. You can't beat yourself up on decisions you've already made, you know, 10 years in the past or 15 years in the past or whatever. All thing you can do is move forward. Uh, the, the problem comes when you make these mistakes and you know you're making mistakes and you don't correct them. That's an issue. Right. Yeah, that's that's a big problem. Um, yeah, man, but you, you just got to keep keep doing what you do. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and, you know, it's... You know, and I'll just speak for myself. There was a lot of painful things growing up from from the way I was dealt with as a as a son and as a <clears throat> as a child, and um, and those things don't go away. Um, I've never been to like formal counseling before or anything like that, but um, I, I'm actually, if if I'm honest with people, I'm I am adverse to counseling because I have this mental block that's like, hey. I'm not going to pay somebody to talk to them about my problems. I want someone that, you know, I, w- I want someone to want to talk to me. Not, not that I, I feel like I'm prostituting myself <laughs> with my emotions. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm I understand you to talk to you about my problems. You know what I mean? <laughs> I understand that. But I mean, they're all, they're also, you know, professionals, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're doctors and they're there to, to treat, you know, treat wounds that you can't see. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with going to therapy or going to some kind of counseling at all. Uh, I understand what you're saying, though, for sure. That you, you know, you, why, why am I paying this person to listen to me gripe for an hour? Yeah, and I know, and I, I mentally, I know, yeah, this is a doctor, and you know, family members of mine, I encourage, and I. Uh, I know that counseling is the is the way to go. I just have a mental block. I, I don't know what that mental block is, 
but if people need counseling, they should definitely seek it out, you know, and, um, and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I may even try some counseling on my own just to see what, what might be, uh, in places that I'm not uh, able to get to myself, you know, and, uh, a lot of this came on, uh, just, just reliving this, you know, reliving this, uh, month every year and, and, um, wanting to hold on to all of the things that I would, I would say are good times or things that I remember that, um, uh, were positive about my experience with my, with my biological father. And, and also there's a, there's an element of, um, and I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this before, but an element of in my dad's professional life, you know, he was, he was considered by the nation and by his circle as a hero. Right. Right. And, uh, in his personal life, there were a lot of problems that, um, if I were to expose them would change that thought process. And, um, that is a difficult place for an 11 year old to deal with. And also, um, I would say growing up in the shadow of not the facade, cause I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the professional, uh, aspect of his life, but there were, there were damaging, extremely damaging things in our, in his, in our personal lives that, can't be erased. You know what I mean? And trying to juggle that and, uh, never getting, never getting able being able to work through that. Um, and at that time my mom was 29 years old and she was young and, um, didn't have a husband anymore. And I mean, she was in a place where it was very difficult for her to, um, move forward in that first year. I mean, just a lot of grief and things of that nature, you know, grieving the loss of, of certain, aspects of, of, uh, uh, our lives and, and, uh, what, uh, no finality because we never got to see, um, or have, um, any visual finality of that death. And, um, so, you know, there was a lot of domestic violence. I'm just, I'm just going to say it. There was domestic violence and, um, uh, it, it bred from, uh, coming from de- domestic violence. I mean, my, my, uh, my dad's father, uh, would beat my grandma while she was pregnant. And, um, my dad had to endure watching that, you know, and, um, at that point in his life, couldn't do much about it. You know what I mean? And right. so when he could do something about it, he did, but I mean, you never take those scars away. And sometimes if those cycles aren't broken, they continue, you know? And so my dad was, my dad had episodes of domestic violence that weren't just push and a shove. They were pretty detrimental. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard to endure that and not, uh, that voice or, or voices of, Hey, your dad's a hero, you know, all this good stuff and everything. Everyone has something good to say about your dad. And at home, he's got this other uh, uh, thing in the looming over. And, and it's hard for an 11 year old to work that out on his own. And they shouldn't have to, but, oh, no, of you know, course not. It, it was the first year, the first year. I mean, I was dealing with that stuff almost on my own, you know, and, yeah. um, and, and a lot of it I've dealt with. And then, uh, it's just, it, there's just been different things throughout my life where, um, you know, and I think every man, every boy, every man, every person, but specifically every boy, every man is desires to feel and have that love from a father. You know what I mean? That, that unconditional love where it's not just a, a, a hug and a handshake or a $5 bill in your pocket, but, but a true desire to have relationship. You know what I mean? And, right. um, and that kind of skews uh, other things. So go into self-protect mode, you know. So I'm a very, I've always said, oh, I'm a very independent guy. I, you know, I just, I love to do things on my own. And, you know, I like to, you know, you know. Uh, but a lot of that, just uh, self-reflecting on for my own benefit is like, okay, why do I, why do I like that? You know, is, is it because I don't want to give somebody an opportunity to hurt me or 
Am I looking for, um, what's the reason why I like so much control in my life? You know, is it because I want to control outcomes so that I can control, uh, either the, the, uh, the hurt or no hurt in my life and, and things like that. So I was, you know, I was talking to my mom last night about, you know, why do I have this, you know, in my, in my own professional life, I'm, I'm considered a, a strong professional with, uh, uh, you know, very extensive leadership skills, abilities, and um, participation in the company I'm in. And I'm always wondering, okay, am I going to come in tomorrow and get fired for something, you know, because I don't think I'm good enough or, or something like that, or I'm always second guessing myself. And a lot of that is a self-protection of let me, let me, you know, quote unquote, if it were going to happen, quit before they get me, you know, let me get yeah. them before they get me. You know what I mean? So I've been working through a couple things like that over the holidays and trying to figure out, you know, at 42, like this is going to sound stupid, but who am I? No, that's, you know, who, who am I? You know, I, I don't what think am that's I stupid at all. What? It's that's, you know, like I said earlier, that's, that's what we should be doing every single day. We should always be trying to find out, you know, reflecting, you know, exactly who, who am I in this, in, in this, in, in this world, in, in my state, in my community, in my family, where, where can I benefit the most people the most? You know, I remember you telling me, I don't remember word for word, but in, in essence, how much you love what you currently do, you know, and what a relief it was. I mean, at the time you told me this, I'm not sure if it's still the same, but you know, at the time that it gives you an opportunity to first of all, help people. Right. And also, uh, you get away from what you were doing before. You know what I mean? And, and I love the way you put it. I don't remember exactly how it was, but, uh, I'm assuming you still do enjoy your job and and the reason why you do it. And, you know, and I always try to remind myself, yeah, you need money to buy stuff, but money isn't everything, you know? So I'm not going to hang myself out at the next job just because it pays just a little bit more. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's something for sure that this job I have kind of hits all the checks. Um, number one, that they, they compensate, compensate me very well for what I do hands down. Um, and number two, I'm able to help people in, in my, in the very community I work out, I, I work in, live in and everything. I'm helping the people here who are in need now. Um, anytime you can have a job where you're not only, you know, making money to pay bills because that's a real thing. It's never going to go away, but two, you're able to help people. You know, you do the same thing at your job, man. I mean, you help people every single day, whether it be starting their first savings account or trying to get a loan to buy a house, to get out of an apartment or, or whatever, or to help them invest money for the future for when it's time to retire. You do the same thing, just in a different way. I help people medically. You help folks financially. Absolutely. You know, and it's it's... I think there's a lot of factors right now globally and uh, locally, wherever you, I'm I'm assuming locally for you, but locally here, it's, um, there's a lot of sickness going on around here. You know what I mean? And whether it's, you know, we can get political about stuff and all kinds of things, but really there, I got two people that are sick in my household, neighbor down the street, their whole family's got this, you know, the virus and, um, my oldest was telling me today that uh, they're considering shutting down schools in this area for at least two weeks. They've already shut schools down across the river. And, um, you know, it's and now work is starting to become uh, an issue with, uh, with it. And, and so you think, okay, so my regular thought process is let's help these people. Like you were just saying, let's help them with this stuff. And as a manager, as a leader, I've got to, now consider, well, not just now, but enhanced now, uh, my personnel, my people, you know, I have, I have a young lady that works for me and, um, she was cleared to come back and, 
uh, she shouldn't have been there. Mm. I can just see visibly that she is just, it's, I told her, I, I, I mean, compassionately, I was like, hey, you know you don't have to be here, right? And just because you can be here doesn't mean you have to be here because, yeah, is it painful not to have everybody that's that's on your team uh, at, at the job site every day? Yeah, but, man, I'm telling you right now, I care more about the people. I really do, about my people specifically and and how much they're struggling. But what they think, what they're thinking is, and, and it's the reality for a lot of people across America, is, okay, I'm going to force myself to go here today because I need, to, I need to pay my rent. I'm going to force myself to go here today because um, I got to save my time for whatever. Right. You know, or I got to go here today or I'm going to look, I'm going to look, I'm going to look bad on, in front of my peers, you know, or whatever it may be, but really just the compassion of, Hey, get well, your, your health cannot be uh, reattained if it's diminished to a point past uh, getting healthy. You know what I mean? And, I haven't, I mean, right now, I mean, this, we got the, the flus out there, the common cold, people are getting strep throat, they're getting whatever viruses are out there, and there's just a lot of compounding things, and I don't want to be known for uh, how much did I push my people to get the job done. I want to know how much did I care about my people. You right. know what I mean? For sure. And that's something that my company has been really big on, you know, just simply because we are in and out of hospitals all night long, all day long. You know, we are we are out there walking through the ERs, going to the labs and everything. And they have said, you know, if you have symptoms, don't even think about coming to work. <laughs> you stay at home. Because when COVID all first kicked off, we had a couple of our bigger centers, uh, like our, our big our big hubs, uh the department that I work in got totally wiped out in a matter of a week because one person came to work with a little bit of a cough, not knowing they had COVID and spread it all around in that same division or that same department. And uh, for, for two weeks they had super skeleton crew, maybe one or two people to operate that entire department. And that's, it's not, not a good look. Uh, because then it just wears out everybody else who is left doing it. So yeah, I've been looking. Yeah, they, up, get, they get burnt out, man. Oh, for sure. And that's what we're seeing now. If people keep quitting their jobs and stuff. Was the people quitting the jobs now aren't quitting them to make a statement? They're quitting them because the companies have worked them to the bone. Yeah, and you can't blame yeah, them for finding something else now. And we're experiencing that as well. I mean, I've got some pretty loyal employees, but man, they are reaching a boiling point because, you know, you know, even though um, retail banking is considered retail, most people have a mindset when they come, when they come to work from a, for a bank that have come from a retail environment, say, just say for a big box store, you know, if you know what I mean. Right. They're, they're coming to the bank or to the, a, an office job like that to get away from the 60-hour work weeks and the and the every holiday, every weekend type deal, right? Right. I'm just assuming. I mean, that's what I've been told. I've never worked for a big box store. But um, I take that back. I did in college, but only momentarily. Momentarily. Realized <laughs> you're a pilot, pilot crap. And it was – it was the bullseye place that I, I, oh uh, God, gotcha. started. Okay. And so, um, but you know, they, they're telling so, you know, every, every institution is going to have their own staffing model and their own, or every company will, uh, what they're willing to, uh, allow as far as, uh, FTE, right. What they're going to allow in a, in a certain area, because they, they need to make a profit. Every company that's for profits there to make money, right? So whatever the industry is, they're to, there to make money. And if you're paying too much in salary, then that's a line item, you know, that uh, that you can assess and say, oh, well, we were doing this with 10 people, but uh, we did some research and we can do all of these things every day with six people. Okay. And so... I've told my boss specifically in the past, I was like, you know, 
yes, the, uh, you know, transactions, your, your deposits, your withdrawals, your check cashing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yes, they have uh, declined uh, 5, 10, 15% year over year, depending on what year you're looking at. I said, that is true. Okay. But based on the number of FTE that you give somebody, isn't necessarily about how busy you are, but specifically in my industry, it's what type of functions you have to do, right? Uh, in the financial world, you have to have a lot of control, a lot of dual control, a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of process involved in it. There's a lot of things that go on that require multiple people to do things at the same time. Um, and then you throw in someone that got sick, someone that's on vacation, uh, someone that quit. Because um, in my industry, you don't just get hired tomorrow and start. you got to train for at least eight to ten weeks, you know what I mean? Right. And, um, and that's just the very basics. That's not becoming the best that you can be at that, at that job. Um, it usually takes about a year for that. But uh, so through attrition, through sickness, vacation, all those things, now you find yourself well, what you used to do with 10 people doing was sometimes four three people, depending on what's going on. Someone's in a meeting, someone's at lunch, someone's on vacation, someone's sick. So I told my boss, I said, it's not about how busy you are. It's about the functions that you have within an organization that need to be completed and the requirements that, that the company has for the employees. I said, uh, and it's not something my boss can actually change. It's not within her power to change it, but I'm still going to voice that because, um, you know, you get, like we had now, I have one person that's been out that's uh, not going to be back to the six because of a virus. I had one person that's not going to be there tomorrow that was told they could come back today. And they they look like death warmed over. They won't be back. <laughs> uh, we were farming people out to other uh, uh, departments because those people were shorthanded. And then we got sick people. And then, you know, so, so it really, really, really um, – and, and when people think about uh, bank uh, branch banking – my branch is specifically is the busiest branch or second busiest branch in, in the market that I live in. And you know how big of a market I live in. Right. And it's a 40 branch market. Good God, so, man. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize so, y'all were that, y'all, I didn't realize y'all were that big there. I had yeah, no clue. And that's, that's just in this, in this just general area market. And I won't say the area just cause I don't want people to, don't blame to me. guess, but, um, uh, so with that being said, it really takes, I mean, to be efficient, to be uh, top, to give the best customer experience, you, you need eight people, okay? We normally have 10, but then when you're operating at five for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, you're not getting a regular lunch like you normally would, or you feel guilty that you've gone to lunch, you you feel sick, but you feel guilty for calling in sick because you know that if, if you don't come in, crap's going to hit the fan. You know what I mean? So, and there is like nobody else to pull from because it's every place is in the same situation. You have a national employee shortage, you know, labor shortage. So, my point of all that is to circle back for what you said is that people are getting burnt out and you are losing really good people. It has nothing to do with how much you pay them, doesn't matter if you promote them. It's they are damn freaking tired. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And that's, um, you know, my company is, is a not-for-profit company. And so uh, from what I've been told, I mean, I've been there for a little over three years now. And from what I've been told, um, our business kind of ebbs and flows, but it ebbs and flows in chunks of years. So when it's hot, it's really hot, and we are wide open. But then when the drought hits, it's going to drought for a while. That's just what I've been told from a lady who's been who's been working there for twenty years. Um, and when I started, we the company was in a pretty bad drought. Um, I started there in September. And then when January came around, um, they closed. They they closed a lot of our smaller 
um, branches and, or consolidated them into the bigger ones. Uh, they got rid of a bunch of a bunch of um, job titles and either either offered people to move to a different department or offered them severance. And so I'm sitting there and I, here I was I was I was hired in September. In January, all this stuff came came out. I'm like, man, did I did I take the right job? <laughs> it had me worried, you know. Yeah. And and then like at May, after that big big blow up in January, in May, like somebody flipped a switch, and people were coming in and donating blood like crazy, just nonstop. Um, and and, and we were always really kind of at critical levels on, a, on certain blood types, like O-neg and O-pos, of course. But, like, I went and got back to work this past week when I worked, and we had plenty of O-pos that we had t- we'd been taking off, like, restrictions for distribution. It was wide open. I'm like, holy crap. They're like, yeah. Oh, our company, like, our branch is giving away a Prius. Uh, wow. And so anybody who donated during the month of December – was had a chance to win, got put into a drawing to win a Prius, and so like on, we were open Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and we had a ton of donations come in those days, which blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah, so things things have have been picking up now, but like that lady told me the other day, she's like, we're right at the beginning of of a good of a good flow time. We have to hit this while we can because here in about another year or so, it's going to start ebbing out, and it's going wow. it's, it's going to get it's going to get droughty again. So we have to be prepared, you know, to build relationships now with donors, so that when those hard times do hit, we can still get them to come back and keep donating. What are the major factors keeping people from I'm, I'm, you know from donating? I know probably STDs or well, time is the big one. That's something like, that you know. Like that, if you've got like if you've got medical issues, let's just oh say, medical uh, issues like from like my issue. Like I've got I'm, I'm a diabetic, right? Can I uh, donate blood? I think you, you I, know, I believe you can. I believe you can donate blood. Don't quote me on that because I don't work in 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 donor relations or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the, they're trying to get it changed. If, if you for, for the longest time, if you're a, a homosexual man, you can't donate blood. Um, gotcha. But they've been, they have, and people think that it's the blood services that are being homophobic or something, and it's not. That comes straight from the from the uh, from the the FDA. Gotcha. That, that's straight from. Just the risk factors that are that are escalated on that, or right, particularly with men. No, not not so much with women, but particularly with men. Uh, mm-hmm. Homosexual men are a high risk uh, group. Um, you know, back in the day when I first got tattoos, they're like, hey, if you get this tattoo, you'll never be able to donate blood. Is that still an issue? <laughs> it wasn't. You couldn't ever donate blood. It was that you had to wait a year. Oh, okay. I knew it was some crazy crap. Yeah. I couldn't remember what it was. But. but now, as long as you have donated at a like a licensed tattoo shop, because, that, cause, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm covered up all over the place with my, with my tattoos. Um, but I go to a licensed tattoo shop that's got a license from the state. Plus, the guys I go to have 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 taken like college classes in microbiology and and infectious diseases. I mean, they are very educated tattoo artists. Um, and so now, when I go to donate blood, they'll say, "If you had a tattoo in the last in the last year, and you say yes, they'll say where, and they want a name so they can cross reference that with the state to make sure it's licensed and everything." Do you know what the year? what the reason for the year is or what the, what the risk factor that is escalated within that year. Do you have oh, any idea what that part is? It gives you time. It gives times for symptoms for like hep C to show up. Ah, okay. That's, that's the hep C is like the, the hepatitis, I guess all of them are really the, the big worries when it comes to tattoos, just from equipment, not being cleaned properly and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but and how do you know what what blood type? I mean, because you know it's funny that you were talking about this. Uh, my oldest was like, 
group texting me and me and Emily this morning, you know, me and Emily. And I was like, Hey, what, what blood type am I? I'm like, uh, I have no clue. Well, that'll depend on like, what mama is and what daddy well, what is. <laughs> she's like, thanks. What if I need blood? I'm like, uh, Emily's like, we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's so, an emergency I mean, situation, if it's an emergency situation, they'll give mm-hmm. her O negative because anybody okay. can take O neg. Um, okay. they, they could give her O pause, but, they usually don't give that to women who are in childbearing age because it can cause complications if they get pregnant. Ah, uh, okay. Um, no, but she can like go. A clotting issue, or I, I think it's like a reproductive issue, issue of some sort. Oh. I'm not totally sure. Okay. Uh, I just know when hospitals call and they want O neg, and I'll say, "Was it a guy or a girl?" And if they say guys, I can bring you some O pies. Um, but a lot of hospitals have got standards now where they won't even do that. They have, to go, they have to go through a pathologist to, to get it okayed, which is a pain in the ass. When somebody's lost in the line, put the blood in them, in my opinion. You know? <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm just I'm from the outside looking in, too. Um, no, but she, yeah. she can go to any – she can go to any um, – I think any blood service could could type her blood. It don't. It just takes like a, a finger prick to type your blood. Uh, used to, they had, okay. they had kids – they used to have kits that you could they spit over the into. Counter or anything like that, or I don't know if they got them over the counter, but I know like in high school they were going to top our blood or something, and they had kits that uh, it's like like a DNA kit. You just spit into it, and you put a thing mm-hmm. in it. And it tells you your blood type. So the thing that I did earlier this year, the the um, the twenty three and me, it, it, do I find my blood type on that? Probably not. Which is kind of odd. You think they would add that in there? (laughs) Because they they tell you everything else about yourself. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it was hilarious. I was. It's 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 funny, man. I have I'm part of the part of a group within within work, and one of the the people that's in charge of it. I was trying to be funny, but I didn't come across funny. We were we were at this after uh, meeting event. It was just there's just uh, five of us, four of us, and him. And he was just basically saying, you know, which I agree with. I mean, he's like, I don't like anything racist and anything like that. He's And he's a white guy. He's like, and if someone's like making fun of whatever race, he's like, ah, oh, my wife is, you know, whatever race it is so that they feel stupid or whatever. And, and so I was trying to be funny because remember when I told you that Emily took that, that uh, DNA test and she came back like 0.00000001 like Native American. I said, oh. <laughs> All right, Hiawatha. You know, and he got he got offended at that. I'm like, bro, I'm I'm Indian, dude. <laughs> I can say that. You can't. Oh man, I and they, I don't. I was trying to be funny, but he didn't take it that way. I could tell his demeanor changed. Oh, oh my crap! Poor you know, fella. but you know, I was just trying to be funny. But it was funny. You know, you gotta, it was funny to anybody who yeah, had a sense you of humor. Take yourself too seriously, you know. Yeah. No, I am. I'm. I'm definitely. Uh, I can talk about it. I'm. I'm indigenous. I'm Hispanic. You know. I'm. I'm also British and uh, Irish and German. Yeah, you're. You're. You're a good old. Good old melting pot. There. You're America mm-hmm. in one person. I got the classic whitey and and uh, Hispanic got together. You know, <laughs> classic whitey. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of wondering how my dad's side of the family is all Hispanic and Native American. You know, my mom's side of the family is all white, but 50%, 50-something percent was uh, British, like 58 or 56% British and Irish. Yes. So I, I, don't, I don't know how I got more of the whitey than I did of the Hispanic side. Well, that's what, you know, me and <clears throat> I've heard, cause I've talked about my, my mom, her family came here. They have a really strange last name, her maiden name. And I was like, you know, I've heard that I had this, this, and this, you know, from the old country, but I showed up being pure white bread. I mean, it was just like <laughs> any kind of Nordic, any kind of Nordic breed you could put. That's what I got. I got the whole, the whole thing. And, <laughs> and Tink had said, you know, the way she heard it explained was it's like they take your mom's side and your dad's side and pour it in a pot and take one big dip out. And that's what you get. So ah, even though there okay. may be other things in there, just the part that when you were made, that's what you got. And you know, the crazy thing is, is that I didn't, 
I'd never really heard like the breakdown of where my dad's side of the family, like very specific region of Mexico. Right. I'm like, I didn't, my mom told me yesterday, she's like, she knew because she knew that's where the people were from. Yeah. But it came up on the 23 and me report of, you know, you're indigenous and Mexican and all these other things. And specifically from this area, I'm like, how do they know specifically where it's from? And my mom's, and I didn't tell my mom that. And she, she was just telling me a little bit about where the people are from. And I'm like, Oh my God, they were right. How do they know that? I yep. mean, how do you know what a specific city or whatever region? I mean, how can you get that from the DNA? That's just those, those, those small indicators in the genotype from what I understand. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not some kind of genealogy scientist or anything, but I was just blown away. That's all. You know what yeah, I mean? It's, it's I very, away. very, it's, it's very interesting how they can determine, you know, like on mine, it even says, you know, like the British and Irish part, it's like, you know, the, the best guess for you is that your family came from this County in Ireland, but you no, know, my family all moved here and inbred back in the 17, 16, 1700s. So, I mean, <laughs> when we just yeah. they landed here and started having sex with each other and that's how it, that's how it, how it happened. They all kind of started <laughs> marrying each That's how it boiled down. Um, you know, Conan O'Brien always says that he's more Irish than most people who live in Ireland now, because when, okay. when his family came to Massachusetts, they just, they married other Irish families and just married into each other. You remember what you showed me when I was uh, visiting you? What's that? Down when you, you you drove me past and and we went and saw the the outdoor place that you showed me. Um, about the Indian you, mounds? No, the um, or the park. The park. The park. Is that is that your mom's side or your dad's side? That's from mom's side. Okay. And how cabin. many generations? Have oh, been that was that was a long time ago, man. Um, okay, that's back when the area was not even settled yet; it was still just wilderness. So I'm thinking, did you have any Native American in your in your 23andMe? Didn't have you didn't did have it? any at all. Tink had some, none at all, and and, and okay. she definitely doesn't look. I'm at just it. interested because of that area, you know. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, they were still. I mean, we were we. My family got here before like the Trill of Tears happened. So there were still plenty of, of native groups in the area. You know, I showed you like where those Indian mounds were. This this mm-hmm. whole area from from you know from Louisiana all the way up to your neck of the woods was an entire empire of Native Americans. Those mounds dot the Mississippi uh, River Valley all the way up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one there across the river. Um, it's called Monk's Mound, I think, over mm-hmm. in Illinois. Yeah, uh, uh, Cahokia. I, I guess it's what it's. I don't know. I'm not, not sure. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Emily Emily knows because she's been to all those. My parents have been. To, I've never been, but but that one, I heard it was a whole system of, around that river. That one, that big one right there, right there in Illinois, across the river from mm-hmm. from y'all. Um, that was a like a ritual site, like, like part of okay. part of their religion. It's massive, and they and they have done x-rays into that mound and there's still infrastructure from where the temple was built inside that mound. Really? Yeah. I'll have to do some research. I've never even explored that. Even like the, the Wikipedia page for it is got like all the information on there because some guy ended up moving there and building a house on top of it or something. It's some crazy built like a fruit stand up there just all over the, yeah, when it was first built all these mounds from there all the way down here. It's all those, and they're still finding them now out in the middle of the woods. I mean, there's still plenty of them that are undiscovered. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it was crazy just to think how how expansive. I mean, that's that's a thousand miles, eight hundred miles. Talking about from Louisiana all the way up there. Yeah, and you were you were telling me, I, th- I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they would start in Louisiana and march all the way up with, and then with all, whatever they had to sell and they would come back without well, anything, right. Or go well, back around. That was that, the, or, yeah. The Natchez trace was used for commerce. Um, commerce, yeah. but, but that was the, that was the white guys doing that. Um, but the, the trace has been there. That road we drove on, uh, that was an old, old native American trail for, 
for centuries. Um, and that's what I mean. You were talking about, you know. I said, you know, could you imagine trying to travel this back then, where you might get twenty miles on horseback a day? You know, and we rattle off forty miles in less than an hour there, <laughs> going up to get some barbecue. <laughs> but I, mean, I couldn't imagine trying to travel those roads like that where there's people waiting to rob you because you're headed north, so you're coming back from New Orleans or Vicksburg or Natchez, so you got money in your pocket, and people know that. And so they're just waiting, waiting to, to snatch you. You know what I'd be interested to to know or to to research or some whatever. You know, there had to be at some point in that area or on the trail places where people would hoard cash. You know, like uh, put a, oh, put a hoard sure. of coins or cash or goods or something so that they wouldn't get robbed, but they knew or what they would think would maybe only be them would know where this was so they could retrieve it later. I, I wonder if there's any undiscovered still. And there's always been like, um, well, not from that time, but like from like the 1800s during the civil war, there's always been rumors of Confederate gold buried uh, because they, they were so afraid because this people don't realize about, about the civil war is that it was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight, as most wars are. They're done for some kind of ulterior motive, ends up being the lower class fight them. Um, and so a lot of these plantation owners from um, all throughout the South, whether it be Richmond, uh, whether it be Montgomery, Alabama, whether it be uh, Natchez, Mississippi, Natchez, Mississippi was, was, had the highest per capita of millionaires in the country behind New York city. Really? Yes. <laughs> yes. Is it because of the trade going through there? It or? was because of the slave trade, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the plantations that were owned. Yeah. Natchez, Mississippi used to be an extremely upscale city. Uh, just a lot of money came through there. That's really interesting because when, when uh, Emily and I were on uh, vacation earlier this year in South Carolina, we, you know, I always try to visit places for the historical value, not for the entertainment value, if that right. makes sense. And I know a lot of people are adverse to visiting plantations because they think it perpetuates evil or things like that, but it's part of history, right? So exactly. Uh, we went to we went to this uh, plantation up there. Now I can't remember. It's it's been a long day, so I can't remember the name of it. But it was a very prolific plantation, and the way that it actually started was the King of England was like, "Hey, I want I need some people to come over here and you know take advantage of this property and and do something with it so that we can you know pro- proliferate our whatever you know and." Um, so the, the guy ends up coming over and with the blessing of the king and starts his plantation and yada, yada, yada. I mean, it's changed hands probably three or four or five times. I can't remember how many, but at one point, man, it was like, uh, it was one of the, it was the place that rebuilt Charleston. Okay. And the reason why it did that is because they made bricks there. Okay, on this plantation. And what happened to Charleston? Well, they were bombed to hell. Yeah. You know, and um, then different periods of time, they did different things on the plantation. But my point is, is that and I just I'm just thinking about this now is that this this is on a specific river over there. Right. They had to have a river to move the stuff. Well, I don't I can't think of a plantation that wasn't near a water source. And maybe I'm wrong, but. Can, do you are the plantations that are anywhere you've ever heard of not on on water to move goods and services and things like that? Well, they have to be kind of close. Um, the Mississippi Delta, the the far west border of Mississippi, is the Mississippi River, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that land that borders that river on the Mississippi side, at least, is flat as all get out. You can see four miles in the Mississippi Delta. And that is because that river has flooded and recessed so many, you know, thousands of times over all of eon of history that water 
has brought silt up onto the onto the farmland and then receded. Well, that silt is super rich in minerals. So from from DeSoto County, Mississippi, which is the county just south of Memphis, all the way down to yeah. Natchez, that's nothing but farmland. And so though in in plus when you're doing like huge like plantation style farming, you need a lot of flat land. So what better places there to do it than in the Mississippi Delta where the land is flat for miles and it's super mineral rich, you know, that just begged to be farmed for cotton and tobacco and everything else. And so you get the whole Mississippi river there as an, as a way to transport those goods South to new Orleans to be sold at the international market. Yeah. Now, you know, like the area I, I live in, there's not a, there was never there was not a lot of plantations in our area because okay. how hilly how hilly all the terrain is a lot of hills oh, and everything that makes sense so most of our farming in this area was sustenance farming it was simply just something to eat and so we didn't have a lot of plantations in our area and we didn't have a lot of slaves in our area simply because it wasn't the land wasn't really good for plantation farming yeah, it's not some kind of moral high ground or anything. It's just that the land wasn't good. <laughs> so, um, well, what they were saying is that once once we uh, won our independence, or once we decided to fight for our independence, most of, most because the king had sent people over to start these plantations to to bring over the goods and serve the goods and you know all of the things that were rich uh, in America over back over to England. And once we won our independence, they were like, well, we're not going to buy it now. Yeah. You know, so a lot of plantations suffered greatly. I mean, I'm, I'm no advocate of slavery. I'm not I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it, it's. That's a very, that's a very was, high. Um, well, look at the high ground you're taking. I'm not in favor of slavery. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not like, oh, I wish it would have succeeded. You know what I mean? But, yeah. uh, but my point is, is that those owners, I mean, those were just regular not regular families, but they were families. I mean, they, they experienced serious loss at that time because they went from selling everything to England or a majority of their stuff uh, to United Kingdom to, to nothing, yep. you know? And so they had to reinvent themselves. And, and that's part of the history of this plantation I visited. It was really interesting on how they reinvented themselves and sold the different um, families over the years. Uh, even a Canadian family, a very prominent Canadian family, uh, dog, uh, bought this plantation. Um, and uh, when that person was called back to the Canadian um, armed services or military service, whatever you call it, in, in World War II, I mean, they, they had to sell it again. So, I mean, I mean, it had been through so many different generations and, and different different reinventions. It was just really incredible. And when you see the big plantation house like you see uh, in, in movies and things like that, that had only been there since the Canadian had owned it in the 30s. Yeah. Uh, before that, it was a tiny farmhouse, like you would think of Backwood, Alabama farmhouse. You know what I mean? It was just like that. I mean, just the, the history of it, there was, it was just a couple of room house. It wasn't like a big mansion and it was a plantation. Yeah. You know, well, that's, that's what me and, me and Tink were talking about something one night. Oh, I was looking at like these um, old houses that are for sale. I love looking at like old houses, like craftsman style houses. And I have some on there sometimes that are from, you know, colonial time. And it's really crazy because you have this gigantic house, you know, but the kitchen is built in a separate little shack out behind the house. I was like, that's so crazy how they did that. She goes, you know why they did it? And I said, no. She goes, so if the kitchen caught fire, the house wouldn't burn down. Oh, I was like, man. Talk about being smart. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, they, they kept like, I was like, oh, this must be like for the help. And she goes, no, it's just, they built the kitchens off of the house. So if the wood burning stove caught fire, it wouldn't take the whole house down with it. I'm like, well, that's pretty dang smart. Imagine being in, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've ever visited Abel Lincoln's house, but uh, in Springfield, Illinois, they have, uh, I mean, it's an original house. It's been 
when Lincoln bought this house in Springfield, he uh, put a second story on it. It has its own kitchen in the in the downstairs. And when it's a guided tour because it's a federal landmark now because the uh, Lincoln's son, uh, I don't know if he sold it or gave it to the um, to this to the uh, feds to to run it as a as a national park. But that kitchen, man, imagine being in the Illinois summer heat. With that kitchen going, because all that heat's going to rise into that house. Yeah, I mean the wintertime would have been awesome. But oh sure. Time, <laughs> oh my gosh, I w- th- what they did say though, to your point, is that a lot of the cooking was done outside. But this one stove that uh, Mary Lincoln had uh, was this very, of course, expensive uh, state of the art stove for that time, and it was definitely inside. You know, yeah. and it was in a small. Uh, square footage kitchen in on the inside. And I'm like, man, I would I would die. But what <laughs> a lot of people don't know is that the people of those means, like like Mary Lincoln, they had a they had a house girl. It wasn't it wasn't a slave. It was a paid girl. Right. And that girl was basically in training to become a wife. You know, so she was learning how to keep the house or do this or do that. And it was it wasn't I would say it was slave labor, but it was probably pretty close. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, but I mean, people, uh, but it was paid. People don't talk a lot about, you know, when you, you've heard of indentured servitude. Right. That's just slave, a slavery from up with a better name, what it boils down to. Um, when There's a book called White Cargo about the Irish slave trade how the Irish were captured by the English and shipped off to the Caribbean colonies. And and there's a lot of like in Bridgetown, uh, Barbados, there's like a, a monument there to the, the Irish slaves. Cause Interesting. the English sent so many there. Would they grab them? When, when England took over Ireland, they separated the country according to, by the river Shannon, which runs pretty much just about down the middle of Ireland. But on the west coast of Ireland, the land is barren. It's like rock out there. And so there's no farmland. So all the Irish got moved to the west coast of Ireland where they could grow nothing. And if, if, if an Irishman was caught on the east side of the River Shannon, they were captured and shipped off to one of the colonies, whether it be Kingston, Jamaica, or Barbados, or wherever. And they could go back home but they had to work enough. They had to work enough to make enough money to not only pay for the ship, the trip back home, but pay for the sh- the trip they took getting there. Which they would never make that much money as an indentured servant. Now, is is there? And I'm ignorant to this. Uh, if you know, you know, is there a lot of uh, mixed race uh, history in? Like King, you know, in those areas where oh, yeah. those well, people even were sent, like for sure. I mean, like Kingston alone, dude. It was. I'll, I'll find the documentary and send it to you. Kingston was so cool. Kingston used to used to be a very wealthy city back in the time of piracy and whatnot during like the golden age of piracy, uh, mm-hmm. early seventeen hundreds. The, the streets of they said the streets of Kingston weren't paved in gold, but they were covered in it. Because these guys, these merchants from all over the world would land in Kingston, and they they have so much gold to be spilling out of their pockets. Uh, wow. Kingston, Kingston was a very progressive city. They because Kingston, an earth, an earthquake. I'm sorry, it wasn't Kingston then. It was Port Royal. Sorry, Kingston is what it is now. But at the time, it was Port Royal, and Port Royal had all this stuff. But an earthquake hit it, and the whole city collapsed into the ocean. Wow. And was gone. Uh, Texas A and M has done a has sent a lot of people there to research um, the old Port Royal as far as sending down divers to bring up stuff and whatnot. The bell, like the clock tower they had in the city, stopped when the earthquake happened. So they know the exact time the earthquake happened. It's still on the bell tower underneath the ocean, but they wow. have they have found um, they have found. Uh, Buddhist uh, relics in the Kingston dive or in the, the Port Royal dives. 
They had, so they believe there was probably a Buddhist temple there. They found Hindu relics. So there's probably a Hindu temple there. They have found menorahs. They believe there's a Jewish synagogue probably in Port Royal. Um, just because of the amount of trade the English did through there. Of course, the English had had ports all throughout the the throughout Asia at the time in India because you know, British controlled India for so long. So it'd make perfect sense. They have a lot of slaves and stuff come. Or a lot of people come through Port Royal from in, from India and Southeast Asia. Um, but yeah, even today there are a, a multitude of colors. The people who live in Jamaica, even in the Bahamas, a ton of people with Greek heritage live in the Bahamas. A lot of people with Indian heritage live in the Bahamas, and you can see it clear as day. Um, because we, one of the times we went to the Bahamas, there was a girl who, who was waiting on us, and she was had clearly had Indian in, ancestry in her. Because I told Tinker that man, she is so pretty. She was, she yes, her hair is gorgeous. Cause it was a slick black hair. Um, yeah, even today, like in all those old English uh, colonies, those in the countries they they were in, you still see the, the the mixture of cultures and races today. Yeah. Anything else you want that's to talk incredible. about? Do what now? I'm sorry. No, that's incredible, man. Oh yeah, it's really that's cool. Incredible. Yeah. Anything yeah, else? Send you me want? that. Send me that information. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna send you that. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to find, find that documentary or not. I'm I'm sure I can. I think it was on YouTube. I'll look it up for you. Anything else you want to talk about tonight? Uh, man, I can't think of anything else. It's been good to talk to you <laughs> been, and, and be able to. You can call get me some stuff any, off my chest. Anytime you want to call and just chat, give me a call. I mean, you're a night walker sometimes, like I am. So, you know, I'm, I'm always <laughs> like up late. You, no, she never bother me. Bother Come you. on, <laughs> it's never a bother. All right, man, let me wrap this up right quick. Thank y'all for listening to this episode of the Hango Show. Be sure to go by tripodbroadcasting.com to check out all the shows on the network. Also, check the show notes for links to our sponsors, like Evils.com, E-A-B-L-E-S. You can save fifteen percent on your next uh, purchase of some premium CBD the discount code hango also check out mydelta8.com jay brother i love you man thanks for taking the time again tonight thanks for having me no problem i love all y'all guys all y'all out there listening also we'll see you next time